Blog Talk Radio. And I hope that everyone is having a great day. April has just been full of anniversaries, um, most of them sad. We got through the sinking of the Titanic this week and the uh, 200th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln. um, No, not 200th, I'm sorry. um, 150th anniversary of Lincoln being assassinated. So there's one more anniversary this week, hopefully one that is a little happier than uh, those, and that is today is the 240th anniversary of Paul Revere's ride. So that means that we have a special episode tonight in that uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the real Paul Revere, a little about what you can actually see, and then we're going to actually go into the text of the poem, and I'm going to read it elocution style. So uh, I hope that you enjoy it. And um, because I think we're going to end up pressed for time, I'm not going to be doing my normal housekeeping, although I do want to mention that uh, I wasn't quite sure when I would get this done today, and that's why I haven't, uh, I didn't get the um, word out ahead of time, but I hope people will enjoy this uh, in the archive. So, Paul Revere was a silversmith. Uh, He was a real person. He was involved with the Revolutionary War. He, uh, besides making pieces, which you can still sometimes uh, find at auctions and that kind of thing, he also did engravings, um, both for currency and for political purposes. He did a very famous one of the um, Boston Massacre, for instance. So he was really involved with this uh, independence movement And on April 18th, 1775, he uh, was instructed to ride uh, out from, ride to Lexington, Massachusetts, because Sam Sam Adams and John Hancock uh, were there and the Redcoats were coming out to arrest them. So Paul Revere actually went with Dr. Joseph Warren, who actually completed more of the mission. Paul Revere uh, got stopped along the way. You can today see Paul Revere's house in Boston, and you can follow them on Twitter. You can see the Old North Church, which is still standing. You can, and we actually took a bus a tour that did this, I'll go out and uh, see Concord and go across 
the modern version of the bridge and you can see Lexington which actually the bridge is very close to the old manse which is a building with a lot of literary tradition that I won't go in right now but we were I, I was there looking at the bridge and it's like oh and then I discovered the manse was right on the last side and the bus was was just about ready to leave and I was like no 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 why didn't they mention the manse was there but it was still a very interesting trip and another thing that we did on that bus is we went by Longfellow's house uh, we didn't actually get to go in, but we saw it from the outside. And also, uh, this is kind of a strange thing if you don't know it, but if you go to the Twin Cities, there are the Minnehaha Falls. And is a character in the Hiawatha poem, also by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And at some point, uh, a rich person in the Twin Cities built a replica of Longfellow's house there near the falls, and it's kind of a cool thing to see, too. Now, my relationship with Paul Revere's ride, the poem, uh, began quite a while back. I always liked the poem, but uh, after my great-grandmother died, uh, I got a number of her books, uh, her, hers and my great-grandfather's and some others that had collected in the house over the years. And one of, well, one of them was all about improving your memory. And this particular book, a lot of them you read on improving your memory, they have things like, you know, the mansion theory about how to remember things or mnemic devices. But this particular one's main thrust was that the brain is a muscle, or at least is like a muscle. And the more you exercise it, or exercise your memory, the more capacity, um, quality it has, which I personally have found uh, in, in dealing with other people to be very true. The more you use your memory, the better your memory works. And so they suggested memorizing The Lady of the Lake, which is an incredibly long poem. If there are any Anne of Green Gables fans out there, that's the poem that Anne was acting out when the rowboat sinks under her. And I looked at that and I was like, no, I am not memorizing that. I will pick another long poem. And this one is a lot shorter than that one. But I decided to memorize Paul Revere's ride. And I actually can still do, if I've got somebody prompting me, I can do the whole thing. And even without, I can do pretty big pieces of it. And I set out to do it elocution style because that is how I had been taught to do poems. Uh, coming from the one-room school tradition on a lot uh, on both sides of my family. And so uh, that is how I read the poem, and that's how we'll get into it tonight. I do want to mention, because a lot of people don't understand, that this is actually part of a much longer work called Tales from the Wayside Inn. And this the story kind of follows the pattern that there are a group of people settling in for the evening at an inn, and they each tell a story. And this is the landlord's 
story or the landlord's tale, and it's also known as, of course, Paul Revere's Ride. And I just love the rhythm of this thing. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friends, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the north church tower as a signal light. One, if by land, and two, if by sea. And I, on the opposite shore, will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said good night and with muffled oar silently rode to the Charlestown shore, just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man of war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watches with eager ears, till through the silence around him he hears the muster of men at the barracks door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, and the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed to the tower of the church, up the wooden stairs with stealthy tread, to the belfry chamber overhead, and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade, up the trembling ladder, steep and tall, to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen and look down a moment on the roof and the moonlight flowing over all. Beneath, in the churchyard lay the dead in their night encampment on the hill wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went creeping along from tent to tent and seemed to whisper all is well a moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead. For suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile, Impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred with a heavy stride, on the opposite shore walked Paul Revere. Now he patted his horse's side, gazed at the landscape far and near, then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth, but mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old north church as it rose above the graves on the hill, lonely and spectral and somber and still. And lo, as he looks on the belfry's height, a glimmer, then a gleam of light, he springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes till full in his sight, a second lamp in the belfry burns, a hurry of hoofs, um, a hurry of hoofs in the village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark, and beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by the steeds lying fearless and fleet. That was all. 
and yet through the gloom and the light the fate of a nation was riding that night and the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land to the flame with its heat he has left the village and mounted the steep and beneath him tranquil and broad and deep is the mystic meeting the ocean tides and under the alders that skirt its edge now soft on the sand, now loud on the ledge, is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides. It was twelve by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into Medford Town. He heard the crowing of the cock and the barking of the farmer's dog, and he felt the damp of the river fog that rises after the sun goes down. It was one by the village clock when he galloped into Lexington. He saw the gilded weather clock swim in the moonlight as he passed, and the meeting-house windows, blank and bare, gaze at him with a spectral glare as if it already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord Town. He heard the bleeding of the flock, and the twitter of birds among the trees, and felt the breath of the morning breeze the blowing over the meadows brown, and one who at the bridge would be the first to fall, who that day would be lying dead, pierced by the British musket ball. You know the rest. In the books you have read, how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere, and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock on the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore, for born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. And that is Paul Revere's Ride by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. A few things to point out in case you uh, weren't, weren't aware. The, when they get to uh, the mystic, and it's talking about that, the mystic is actually a river, and it's a tidal river which means it goes far enough out into the ocean that the that the beginning part of it actually goes with the tides. And there are um, a lot of rivers along the coast where, where that's true. And in fact, uh, if you go a little further south through Virginia, there is actually um, a certain place in the state where the rivers kind of uh, usually hit a waterfall. So that's about the end of where the, the tidal affects them. And so they call the section that is affected the tide water. And you might have heard that expression, and that's where it came from. And uh, I also wanted to mention that uh, I really like a couple of different places in here. 
especially, I love the part where he's talking about his horse. And uh, I just love, all right, um, then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth. But mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old North Church. I just love that image. Uh, the saddle girth is the part of the saddle that goes under the horse. And uh, it's something that you a lot of times have to adjust uh, depending on the horse and depending on the rider. And so I can just see that so perfectly, this impatient guy standing there, turning and tightening the saddle and fuddling with things because he has to wait and he doesn't want to wait. And so he just keeps messing around with stuff. And I just think that is such a true thing. Uh, and also another true thing is the friend who goes up into the tower because, I mean, you can just see that. I mean, today are used to things being well lit. You just go. Uh, there's a, a thing called light pollution. And even when you're out in the country, you can sort of see uh, a halo of light uh, from cities. I, from my farm here, I can see uh, the glow of Cedar Rapids. I can't quite see the glow of Iowa City because there are enough hills and trees in the way. Uh, but I can see the the lights coming off of Cedar Rapids. And all that light means it's really kind of, we sort of take it for granted. Being in the dark or... Uh, not well-lit place is more of the a strange exception instead of the rule. But if you're living in a time where the main source of light is whale oil lamps, which is what they, they mostly were using at that time, there was also candles and different things. But before petroleum became the big source of oil in this country, it was whale oil. And whale oil really ran... It was sort of the what the engine of the country ran on. But in any case, much like kerosene lamps today, they were very flickering. And having actually been in old buildings, when I worked at Escher's Ferry, and there really, those buildings out there, there was only one of the historic buildings um, well, I guess there were two because the, the hotel was because the kitchen slash break room was in the back. But the only one that was actually exclusively used for uh, interpretation that had electricity was uh, the telephone house, which um, they actually had a telephone switchboard in there, and it was supposed to be a little bit of a later house. But the rest of the houses didn't have any light or any electricity. And there were many a time when I had to go and lock up and it was really moving through a house without any electricity at all. It was dark, and there were shadows cast everywhere. And most people aren't all that comfortable around uh, graveyards and cemeteries anyway. For the most part, I don't really have a, a problem with them because uh, we I grew up sort of bet right between two cemeteries, so it isn't much of a big deal for me. But just being in a house with that kind of flickering light, not a lot of it all by yourself, 
in the dark of for as long as it takes to go through and lock a back door and then walk by the, back through the house and lock the front door. It's not a comfortable feeling. So I know exactly what he meant about the uh, masses and moving shapes of, of shade and trying to climb up a trembling ladder. I hate loose ladders. Um, steep and tall, and then he looked down uh, on the moonlight flowing all and on the cemetery in their night encampment on the hill, wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went creeping along from tent to tent, which was, of course, from gravestone to gravestone. It just has so many good little bits like that in it. I really love this poem. And probably, but probably my favorite part is about the, uh, well, is the end. I love the part where he's talking about the farmers because I think farmers have been and always will be an important part of this country. And I just love this bit. How the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. This makes it sound a lot more heroic than it was and gives a much better, it makes them sound like the American side had a much better showing than they actually did. But I love that part. I mean, it just gets your heart beating fast that that's going on and it's the farmers doing it. And then I love the part at the end, again, because I, I really do believe in that, that, um, that born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed in the midnight message of Paul Revere, which I take as very symbolic, that it isn't really that it's Paul Revere, but that when... America is truly under fire that its people will gather together. So I just think there's so much great things in this poem, and it has such a wonderful rhythm, and and I just love it to death. And I can't say enough nice poem by far. It's my favorite Longfellow poem by far. And I just, I'm glad I got the opportunity to share it with you tonight. And again, I would like to uh, suggest that you look more into Paul Revere and Dr. Joseph Warren and the whole ride because it really is a fascinating story. And to hear a little bit more about it from Paul Revere's viewpoint, which isn't always, you know, when someone's telling a story about themselves, it maybe isn't the most truthful account. <laughs> but there is a really great book uh, called And Then What Happened, Paul Revere. And it's written by Jean Fritz. It's a children's picture book. And according, according to the little blurb about it, she uh, based the story on the family story that had come down because Paul Revere is an old man apparently was telling this story a lot to his grandchildren and to other young relatives. And so they'd be going along. And, you know, sometimes when you have family stories, certain 
you know, kind of patterns develop. And this one's pattern was that every so often they would say, and then what happened, Paul Revere? And it really is such a sweet book. I just love it to death. As far as I know, it really was based on the family story. I can't say that I know very far, but it just reads like a slightly polished up family story. And I hope that you will, having read the poem, which I think you should read for yourself, you'll also check out And Then What Happens to Paul Revere. And just as a total dink, Jean Fritz is also one of the winners of the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award for her career contribution to American, or to her career um, contribution to American children, uh, children's literature. So we wrap it back around to Laura again. And I hope you enjoyed this kind of example of elocution. I wish you could see the hand gestures because I really like the hand gestures I came up with for this and the stance. And this kind of form of poem reading uh, was something that they developed in one-room schools. Now, of course, people some people were better at it than others, but you had programs and you were supposed to learn pieces, um, you know, poems. In fact, Laura in her books many times talks about how they they had these poems and they'd practice reading them or they would uh, go through and and recite them. And that is sort of what it sounded like. And this isn't one of the poems they mentioned um, by name. As I said, it's just one of my favorites. But they did name a lot of other great poems uh, sort of from this era. So um, my bet is that they were familiar with Paul Revere's ride as well. So I really uh, want to encourage you all, again, to read poems by yourself for Poetry Month. I particularly recommend Longfellow, but there are others, um, so many good poems out there. And I guess since I have just a couple minutes here, I will give you one other hint. While Emily Dickinson wrote some wonderful poems, they also make gingerbread at Emily Dickinson's house, which was her recipe, and the story is that she made it, and she didn't really come out of her room or her house a lot, but this is the story my mom got when she visited Emily Dickinson's house, was that they had some kind of basket, and she would lower it out the window to the neighborhood children with some of this gingerbread in it. And she brought the recipe home, and assuming that really is the recipe, it is the most terrible gingerbread I have ever eaten. So avoid it if you possibly can. Unlike Laura Ingalls Wilder's gingerbread, which is some of the best I've ever had. So, to tie up one little other poetry connection with Laura, you should uh, you should definitely make Laura's gingerbread instead of Emily Dickinson's. And we are about out of time for tonight. I hope you enjoyed our special episode about Paul Revere's ride. And 
uh, as far as New Year's resolutions go, so far I am failing horribly at getting back on schedule, most because I haven't had a lot of time to come up with questions, which is sort of one of the main things that you have to do uh, before you can have anybody on with an interviewer. So I am pledging to do better going forward, and I will let you know when I have the May episodes booked. So thank you very much for joining me tonight, and remember, right in the corner where you are. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.